0: Why would you put your hands together? Help me welcome all of our first-time guests, both those of you here in the room as well as those of you online. Well, Man, I don't know about you, really excited for all the baptisms. I just think it's so incredible when people make that public declaration. So actually, that's where we pick up in our series. If you are a guest here today, we are on part three of a series we've been doing called The Church Jesus is Building. And uh, that actually, baptisms were the very last thing that happened at the end of our uh, time in scripture last week. So uh, the, the whole idea behind this series is when Jesus told his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so then we have to say, what does this church on the earth look like? Where do we get a picture of it? Well, we actually get a picture of it from the book of Acts. That's why we're simply going straight through the opening chapters there. And so we see what we would refer to today as the birth of the New Testament church. But I think the reason this series is so important is because if Jesus is building his church, we need to make sure that we're on course for what he had in mind. Would y'all agree to that? So one of the coolest things I got to do this summer, you know, I was on sabbatical for a little while. One of the coolest things I got to do was go to selling school. And that is S-A-I-L. I I had somebody, when I first said that, they asked, why'd you go to selling school? Are you going to quit your job and become a, no, selling school. And uh, for the record, I passed. So if you don't want to call me pastor, you can call me skipper. Or a captain. I officially have my captain's license. But anyway, back to the point. The reason I'm telling you that story is because one of the last things we had to do, the students and the professor, we spent a week living on board a catamaran in the Caribbean. And one of our final things to actually pass the course was to plot a course and stay on course. And so he showed us where we are on a map. He says, this is where you are. And tomorrow I'm going to sit back while you sell the boat and you have to take me there. And there were two things about our course. One was something we had to avoid and one was something we had to go through. So one of the things we had to avoid was an underwater volcano. Because first of all, it's actually illegal to sail across it. And second of all, if it goes off, we will be vaporized. He didn't want to die. I go, We'll go along with that one. And then the second thing is he wanted us to thread the needle between these two mountains coming out of the sea. They're side by side. They're called the sisters. And if you, you get it wrong, you're going to find yourself dashed into one or the other. And as the baby brother in a family with two older sisters, the uh, imagery was just way too real for me. The idea of having to thread the needle between two angry sisters. So the point of that, of course, is if we got off course, something was going to go really, really wrong. And so the same idea as we look at Jesus building his church, it's not just about going to heaven. But it's about how we are the church, how we live out church life together, right? I mean, we all know, we've already discovered in the series, we are the church. If you're a believer in Jesus, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then you're a part of the church, the family of God upon the earth. But how we do life together, well, two words that would describe that is what we say, church life. So what was church life like for them 2,000 years ago, right after they had spent this time with Jesus learning what he wanted from them, we think it's a pretty good model for us. And so what we're going to do today is simply look at what did church life look like? How did it begin for them? And I want to just point out the obvious as we're doing this. I think it's really important that we have the right perspective. And that perspective being if you were to go to the gym and hire a trainer, you would expect them to tell you how you could make some changes to Your ability to lift weights or to look good in a bathing suit whatever it is you're trying to accomplish if you go to a doctor and say i have a pain or i'm sick you would expect them to tell you how you could make a change chances are really good as we look at church life two thousand years ago we're going to discover that we're maybe a little off course i don't want anybody to feel like i'm beating you up that's not the point but we need to start with the perspective that we want to learn something and maybe we need to make an adjustment is everybody okay with that today So you're not getting beat up today, but we are just honestly looking in the mirror and saying, do I live the way they were living 2,000 years ago? So again, since we're going straight through the opening chapters of Acts, this is a great time for you to follow along in your own Bible. If you've got your Bible with you, then go ahead and turn to uh, Acts chapter two, and we're going to be at the very end of that chapter in verse 41, and uh, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, so it's okay. Let me remind you where we are in the series. In chapter one and part one of our series, we looked at the idea that Jesus was crucified, then raised from the dead, but then he didn't immediately go to heaven. He actually stayed on the earth for 40 days, teaching his closest disciples the most important things about the kingdom of God, which obviously is going to include how to be the church on the earth. And so we saw him saying, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then last week in part two for us, we also saw in chapter two of the, the uh, book of Acts, we saw this outpouring of the Holy Spirit he had told him to wait for. And uh, if you were here, then we can all agree, this is one of the most bizarre events in all of the Bible, right? Everybody with me on that one. And uh, so we talked about what this weird gift of tongues and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is all about. And look, you guys came back. Praise God. And so today we're going to pick it up after that outpouring of the Holy Spirit after Peter stands up and preaches and explains who Jesus is. And so we're going to start in verse 41, which is the last verse we left off with last week and said, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So again, we ended last week, the church grew from just over a hundred people to over 3,000 people with just one sermon and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, obviously. And so today we're going to begin with what came next. Well, the very next sentence tells us that in verse 42, how they did church life. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe. Another way to explain awe is reverent fear. So reverent fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And we're gonna pause right there for a minute, because this passage is often misunderstood and then is actually used to promote uh, a political movement, in particular socialism. And we're hearing a lot about this today. So one of the things I like to do as I'm teaching the Bible is anytime that it's really culturally relevant that we're misunderstanding the Bible, I like to to address that, if that's okay. And so I think we need to do that right now because a lot of people are looking at this passage and a few others like it early in the book of Acts to say that socialism is actually the nature of true Christianity. And uh, since it is such a big hot button issue in our world today and, and a political movement, I need you to understand that that's not correct. That's not what is taking place here at all. What we see here is the sacrificial sharing of resources, but it wasn't socialism, it was survival. Completely different from that political movement. Let me explain. When I preach today, I will ask, how many want to be forgiven and go to heaven? And many of you have said, me, most people here today would say, yes, I would raise my hand to that. I have, I've prayed, I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven, praise God for that. And if there's anyone here today who has not done that yet, I hope you do by the time we're done. But if we were to go back in time 2,000 years ago and to, to be preaching to these very people, I would have needed to say, how many of you want to be forgiven for your sins and go to heaven and most likely lose your job tomorrow? See, what you have to understand is these Jewish people, as they declared Jesus was the Messiah, the risen savior, they were now persecuted and ostracized from society. The religious movement of the Jewish people did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That was the reason he ended up crucified on a cross. So what happened is anybody who was Jewish and rose up and said, I believe in Jesus. I've I've heard that he's alive the Jewish leaders who feared for their influence over the community would then use their clout, their political pressure to go to people and say, if you employ anyone who claims to follow Jesus, we won't allow you to worship at the temple anymore. If you hire a day laborer who claims to follow this Jesus, we won't allow you to participate in our faith anymore. If you shop at a store, For anyone who follows Jesus, we want to allow you. And so as a result of that, many people who were Jesus followers were no longer able to function. They lost their careers. They lost their jobs. In some cases, they started to lose homes. And so what they would do in order to survive is those who had a little extra would sell it. And they would bring it and say, well, now we can at least eat for the next two weeks. And we saw this practice of them supporting each other in radical generosity all for the sake of survival because they were being persecuted. That is what we see in Scripture, generosity and sacrificial sharing for those who are being persecuted for the name of Jesus. What we do not see in Scripture is the idea that someone should work harder to provide for those of us who do not. That's a completely different thing. That's the political movement you see out there. Look, here's the truth. Can we just be honest? We all like free stuff. Anybody in here like free stuff? You want to go to the car dealership and as you're checking out a new car and you're wrestling with which one to get because one costs a little more, we'd all love it if somebody just came out and said, pick whichever one you want, I'll pay for it. We all want free stuff. But the only way you get free stuff is when someone else does work harder for you to pay for it for you. And that's not what's in scripture. Actually, what's in scripture Couple of concepts, whoever works should do it as one working for the Lord. That means that you do your best, you work your hardest. You don't say, well, you know, I'm just working for Jesus today, so that's why I'm coming in a little late, gonna leave a little early, and gonna take an extra long break because it's all for Jesus. Nope, that's not how that works. And the scriptures also say that the one who doesn't provide for his own family is actually worse than an unbeliever. When you look at the Bible, you find out that a Christian should look to God And their God-given talents and their diligence for their provision, not government redistribution. This was not redistribution. This was sacrificial sharing for survival in the midst of persecution. Everybody good now? Y'all got that? All right, there you go. Let's keep going now. Because after they were being so generous to each other, we see that day by day, they attended the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It already went from 100 to over 3,000, and now we're seeing the church continue to grow every single day. So what did these thousands of people do together? How were they the church? Again, I think what we can see today as we look at their foundational practices, we can see how we can get back to being closer to on course for some of those. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, I'm gonna preach that, there are five foundational practices they had that we should have today. Most people preach this and they say there are four. And that's because the first sentence says they were dedicated to four things. But there's actually a fifth one in the passage. And I think by the time we get to the end, you'll agree with me. But here we go. Back in verse 42, it told us the first four they were devoted to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayer. So the first one we're gonna look at is the idea of being devoted to Teaching. And the reason this was so important is because they didn't have this. You and I can actually read this, not only to mention that we've got more podcast and church sermons online. We, we've got so much access to teaching. This is really easy for us today, but they didn't have that. What is our Old Testament would have been their scriptures, and they didn't have a copy that they could keep personally. It was too rare and too expensive. And the New Testament hadn't been written yet. You and I have the luxury and the privilege of being able to turn and have four copies, four renditions of what Jesus did upon the earth. We call the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we have the book of Acts, which is the story playing out right now in their lives. It hasn't even all happened for them yet. And then we're gonna have the apostle Paul have a radical salvation encounter and go on to write the majority of our New Testament. So we know what Jesus expects from us. They had to get together and say, hey, Peter, Tell us again what Jesus said when he preached on the Mount of Beatitudes. Hey, John, can you tell us again what the Sermon on the Mount was like? Can you tell us again what Jesus did when he prayed for that blind man? See, they had to get together with the apostles to hear what Jesus had taught, and then especially, what did Jesus say to you guys for those 40 days before he ascended to heaven? Tell us. Now, here's what's really important for us to understand. I think one of the biggest differences between them And some of us today, 2,000 years later, not only did they want to hear what Jesus had said and done, they wanted to apply it to their lives. They wanted to change how they were living. And the truth is, again, we we want to look in the mirror today and talk about how we can get closer back to this. But one of the struggles we have in the American church today is there is no shortage of listening to teaching, but there is a bit of a shortage of applying that teaching. And it's a little different. The truth is, as preachers, we all know that when we get up to preach on any given Sunday, that we essentially are laying out a buffet and that you're going to come along. And as we're talking, you're going to go, oh, I like that point. I think I'll take that one. Oh, I don't like that point so much. Yes, I'm not a fan of that. I think I'm going to leave that one behind today. Thank you, Pastor Jimmy, for that sermon. And so every preacher knows when he stands up that he is simply presenting to you and you are going to choose how much of it you actually want to apply to your lives. But for them, being devoted to teaching wasn't just being devoted to hearing. It was being devoted to learning it and the application of it. One of the other things that we'll do is we go through these church life practices today, these foundational ways of doing church life together. I'm going to tell you how we do that here at Grace Life. And so one of the things that we want to do here at Grace Life is to leave this room and then get into what we call life groups. These are small groups where one of the primary reasons we have them, there are two primary reasons, but one of them is so that we actually have to look at someone in a small group setting, know their name, and then talk about how we're applying what we're being taught. Talk about how we're growing to be more like God. It's important for us to get in that environment because if you don't get into one of those environments, then you simply sit in a large room, you pick, you choose, and you come back next week and you listen to more. But I think it's important for us to get into these small groups where we talk about how we are applying this to our lives, which leads to the second thing they were devoted to, and that is that small group community. The word fellowship is how it's translated. But I want you to understand how important the actual word that I'm about to share with you, the Greek word, and I usually don't share that, but I think it's important today because this particular Greek word, Luke, who wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the entire book of Acts, he used this word only one time, and it's right here. That they were devoted to this Greek word, koinonia. If you've grown up in church, you've heard the word koinonia before, and you maybe would summarize it as the community of believers. But I want to share with you a better definition that I think really communicates this better it's the sharing in the activity and the privilege of an intimate association. And those two words are important intimate association. It is sharing in the activities and the privilege of an intimate association. You see what this idea of koinonia that they were devoted to is, they were devoted to the intimate association because as believers in Jesus, they had something people outside didn't have. And that is that they all believed Jesus was alive, that he was the Messiah, he was the risen savior. This intimate association they shared because they were all called to be witnesses for Jesus. This intimate association because they were all filled with the Spirit of God. This intimate association because they were all being persecuted by everyone else out there. This intimate association was of incredibly great value to them, and they were highly, highly committed to it. The best imagery that I can give you of this, at least for me, what comes to mind, is that of a soldier who is deployed in a hostile environment, and the only place that they can feel safe and let down their guard is back on the base because on the base you've got walls and you've got people standing guard. But when you leave the base, everybody else is not a part of the intimate association and they are against you and they may shoot at you and they may try to kill you. But when you get back to the base, it's everyone else who wears the same uniform. This stands for the same flag. You've got an intimate association and you share things like, Wow, do you see how close that bullet came to us today? Do you See the privilege we have that we're still alive? Do you see the mission that we have that we share? And that is something that I think we've lost a little bit as the church is that we don't have a huge commitment to the intimate association that we share something the rest of the world doesn't have. And one of the things that we lose out on is that generosity that we saw them have. The reason that they were sharing everything so sacrificially wasn't to a random cause. It was the faces and names. And because they got together house to house and they were committed to an intimate association that you and I represent Jesus and the rest of the world is against us. And that's why you got fired. And your kids are not gonna eat because we share an intimate association for the name of Jesus. I'm gonna sell a field that I have and I'm gonna bring the money because I can't see your kids go hungry. And see, we, we can avoid this commitment to this intimate association. The truth is that's where I think the American church really struggles We do really well at coming together in big groups and large rooms and hearing preaching and singing songs, but we struggle with getting together because then we have to be responsible for other people. I don't want to be responsible for somebody else. Then we have to let them and their problems and their thoughts and their advice intrude on my life. How dare they tell me that the way I'm living doesn't line up with this? Who do you think you are? I'm not coming back to your house next week. And as a result of that, I think we're missing out on something that's very, very important. The reality is this is the second reason we have life groups because we need an environment where someone does say, hey, what I read about Jesus in here doesn't line up with the way I see you living your life. Hey, what I see in here is something we need. Matter of fact, think about it this way. How many of us get together with coworkers? We try to have our intimate association outside of the church. So we, we get together with coworkers and talk about how to do marriage. Nobody's a Jesus follower, and everybody's marriage is miserable. Why are you asking them for advice? How do you deal with your wife? I don't know, man. I hang out in the garage all day long. That's how I deal with my wife. works for me. Okay, I'll try that too. Stupid. <laughs> what we need is an environment where somebody actually knows what's in here. And their answers for: like, how do you deal with your, your wife? How do you deal with your husband? How do you deal with your kids? How do you handle your finances? how do you handle your morality? Like we we need to be together with people who are going to ask questions based on what this says and encourage one another. That's the kind of environment we need. And that's what they were committed to. This is where they were committed to getting the apostles teaching, but then being committed to living it out together. It was an intimate association that only people who had the blood of Jesus covering them shared. The third thing they had came out of that intimate association. They were Devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, many people think this simply represents communion, and that is a part of it. I'll get to that in a moment, but was actually bigger than that. For them, it was sharing an entire meal because this would have been a huge part of how they did life together in the Middle Eastern culture. And in some cases, They were struggling to feed each other so they'd have to come together again because of the persecution in homes and come together with just enough food to be able to do a meal together. But do you know what happens when you share meals? You start sharing life. The amount of time it takes to come together and also, by the way, to get in someone's kitchen. Y'all know if you have been in someone's kitchen, you are a real friend. I mean, you get on their porch is one thing. The UPS guy gets on the porch. But if you get in the house, And then you come into the kitchen and then you start cooking together and you say, hey, can you cut those vegetables up while I'm doing this? And by the time you fix a meal together and then you sit down and you share a meal together and you keep doing that on a regular basis, you're actually going to get to know each other because see what you can do and people do this they have small groups where they pick up their book they do a small group book study and they say well everybody today we're on chapter 2 and let's let's go through the discussion questions what answer did you get to this and you can be a part of a small group and keep it very very cerebral but once you actually start breaking bread together having meals and taking time to talk at some point conversations about where you were raised and what you went through, and what your family's going through right now, and what you like, and what your struggle is in your faith. Those things are gonna start to come out. You're going to share life together. And if you've ever been a part of a church small group, if you've ever been a part of a life group here at Grace Life, you'll agree with this. The best life groups are the ones that have food together. Especially when somebody in your group is a good cook. That makes it a really good group and you get upset if anybody ever wants to stop doing that group. No, we can't quit. Okay because it forces you to actually share life. And that's what we need. Because again, we're an intimate association in a really hostile world. But it would also include what you and I simply call communion. For them, at some point in the meal, if you can just imagine, they've cooked the food, they've gathered, they've talked, and now they're sitting around eating it. And you can imagine one of those people at some point near the end would say, hey everybody, grab a piece of." the bread. Do you remember when our Lord, on his last night before he was crucified, he took bread and and they would take that meal and that time of sharing life together and they would actually turn it into an act of worship. It was more than just going through a book study together. The fourth thing that they were devoted to was prayer. Now, there are many types of prayer. the truth is, many types of prayer would have been present. Just some examples, there's intercession, and that is where you are praying on behalf of another person. There's petition, and that is where you're praying to God for your needs, asking him to meet those needs. There's adoration, where you're praying to God and praising him, telling him how great he is. And all of those would have been present along with some others. But what we see in the book of Acts is a new purpose. A new type of prayer evolves that had not been in the people of God before. And so that's why this is so, so important. You see, what happened now, Jesus had told his disciples, the Holy Spirit has been with you, now he's going to be within you, and then he will come upon you. Because the Holy Spirit is within us, there's a new dimension of prayer that we get. And I wanna show you the contrast here, and you just look on the screen because we're gonna jump around a little bit. But if we go back to chapter one in Acts, Jesus had been with his disciples for 40 days and then he goes to heaven. They're waiting for 10 days on their own. And uh, well, they get a little confused about what to do and they just decide we got to do something because we're bored. So in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let another take his office. Okay, Peter knows the Bible, great. So it's a good sermon. The problem is, he didn't really know what to do with this idea that Judas is gone, he needs to be replaced. And so instead of hearing from God, they just act upon their best idea. And so it says they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know, Because we don't, but you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. And they cast lots. Somebody broke out their Monopoly board, pulled out the dice, and they threw dice. God, we don't have a clue what to do. Somewhere in the Bible it says that Judas should be replaced, so we've decided one of these two guys should do it. The truth is, I don't even think they heard from God on that one. And the reason is because later Jesus is going to choose the 12th apostle, a guy named Saul on his way to Damascus, and he will go on to do great miracles and write the majority of the Bible. So there's just a pretty good chance that Paul was the one that God wanted and not Matthias because this is the one and only mention of Matthias in all of human history. So chances (laughs) are, didn't do a whole lot, but hey, the dice were in his favor. Here's my point though. In chapter 13, we see a change. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke and they heard God. They heard a spiritual voice saying, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, not Matthias, for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, let me be very clear. In chapter one, they had the Holy Spirit within them. But the tradition in all of human history up to this point to discern the will of God was by casting lots. And so even though they have the Holy Spirit within them, they don't know how to hear a spiritual voice yet. They don't know yet that prayer isn't just asking God for something, but it is talking to God and he will speak back. That God wants to speak to his people because he's put his spirit inside of us. We have a spiritual voice. We can hear the will of God for our lives. We're going to see it takes them time to develop this new way of prayer. I want to encourage you. If Jesus is your king, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and you can hear a spiritual voice. You do not need to be using your Monopoly dice to figure out what God wants for your life. Stop it. Don't do it anymore. Pray, talk to God because he speaks to his people. Just a few other things that we're trying to do to make prayer a foundational practice for us here at Grace Life. I would... Say that I don't know anybody prays enough, and so I'm not going to say we get an A-plus at this. But some of the things we do, just so that you are aware of what's going on, we have uh, life groups that meet together simply to pray. We have a prayer team that gets every one of the prayer cards that comes in every weekend. And the things that people say, I need prayer for this, even online, and it's distributed to them. Someone's praying for you by name all week long. Uh, We have people right now, every time there's a service in here, as you are sitting and receiving and enjoying, Our prayer team, some of those people are in one of our offices on their knees praying for you. They give up an entire service to pray for you. At the end of our services, you've noticed we always say there's a prayer team down front by the stage because someone is here ready to intercede for you or to petition alongside of you whatever you need God to do in your life. We also do our week of prayer and fasting twice a year, every January and every August, where we encourage you not only to petition God for things you need, not only to intercede alongside of each other, but to hear his voice, to discern his will for our lives. We've come together with other churches in the city. Last year, we launched Cola Praise. That's a 24-7 prayer movement. What that means is each church took a day of the month. Grace Life is the 15th, the 15th calendar day of every month. And uh, there are different days covered by different churches. And then they've divided up the day with people that have taken a half hour or an hour. And what that means is that the city of Columbia now has every hour of every day covered in prayer, asking for God to move in our city. How cool is that? So let's move on to the fifth thing that we see. And again, it's not in the first sentence, so a lot of people don't teach it as one of their foundational practices. But if you look in verse 46, it says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Now, the first four that we just talked about largely took place in their homes, breaking of bread in their homes. But they also continued that practice of attending the temple together. And you might wonder why that is. Well, I'm going to explain that. For you and me, the equivalent to that today would be our worship services coming together for public worship gatherings. Because there are two purposes that we hope to achieve when we come together, and there were two purposes that they had at the same time. You see, what we miss out on sometimes when we think about the early believers, because they're now following Jesus, we think that they then rejected their upbringing as Jews. But they didn't actually, because it was their Jewish faith that had them looking for the Messiah. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that had ever been taught as a Jew. And so they still wanted to come together to worship Yahweh. Jesus was the Messiah, but Yahweh was still Yahweh. God was still God. He was still on the throne. And the problem that we have, we, we, we take advantage of this. We don't understand how precious this is. They didn't have it. Again, they didn't have the New Testament yet, but they also didn't have their scriptures, our Old Testament. They didn't have a private copy. It was too expensive and too rare. Even today for a congregation in Israel to have a copy of the Old Testament scrolls, they cost $30,000, dollars or $70,000, depending upon who produced them and how long it took. It'll take over a year for them to write them because they don't mass produce them. They still have to be handwritten. And if there's a mistake, then that entire section of the scroll has to be thrown away and started over. It's a big deal. And so they would still want to hear about God. They would still want to come together with other people who are proclaiming that El Shaddai is great and on his throne. So they would still go to the temple to glorify God. That's the first purpose. And you and I come together and hear You've heard me say this often if you've been at Grace Life. This room isn't for you. This room is for him. We come in here to sing songs about how great he is, not how great you are. We declare that he is God. He is on his throne. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of glory. And we want to hear what he says to us so that we can live our lives for his glory. We're getting something out of it, but it's all for him. This room is for him. And then the second reason that they would still go to the temple is also one of the purposes we have in coming together, and that is they went to share Jesus. The best chance they had of helping someone become a Jesus follower was to go to the Jewish people who were looking for the Messiah and to say, we found him. So they would go to the temple to share their faith. And for you and me, this is an opportunity for us to bring a neighbor or a friend or a coworker, because This is a place where they can come and experience God's presence and hear what Jesus has done for them. You know, I hear this all the time from guests. First-time guests will come up to me and talk to me in the hallway. Oh, it's our first time here. Man, I tell you, this place just feels special because they don't know what it is that they're feeling. They're feeling God's presence. We invite the Holy Spirit here. We don't want to have a service where God is not here. This is all about God. And so they don't even have words for it, but they know it's not what they feel in their living room. And your next door neighbor and your coworkers and your friends and your family, they need to feel something they don't have in their living room. And that's why we can't stop doing this. And the truth is our commitment to public gathering for worship, it's kind of waned. COVID kind of messed up the way we do this. A lot of us think, "Oh." I don't have to like drive all the way to the building and get together with those people. I can hear a sermon on my couch. And what used to take half a day to get dressed, get the kids ready, get everybody in the car, fight with your spouse, get to church, pretend you didn't fight with your spouse, smile while you were in there, sing songs, go to lunch and get back home. Now we turned it into 45 minutes in your pajamas on your couch. And listen, I appreciate technology and I'm glad that we can be there. We reach over five, 600 people every week online and I'm not condemning that. What I'm saying is that we miss out on coming together in groups. And I, I'm going to tell you, I think there's power to crowds exalting the name of Jesus. And if you read the book of Acts, you're going to see that the mega church is God's idea. I mean, we're only in chapter 2, and there are already over 3,000 believers, and we're going to see that continue to grow exponentially. And we see the way God showed up even in the Old Testament when they were dedicating the temple. Incredible, manifest power and presence. I believe God loves when crowds come together. I think it's important because every Saturday, crowds come together to worship their college football team in the tens of thousands. And that's why I think that the size of the crowd matters to God. Because the more people that get together and declare, I I, I can't wait for the day that we have more people in one place on a Sunday than we do on a Saturday for a football team. I mean, we're getting some big churches. I mean, there are some places where we got 2,000 seats, but we're still a long way from football. I'm off my notes. I should shut up. Because this is SEC country. So, I'm going to end by challenging you. I want to challenge you to take your church life as seriously as you do the rest of your life. Here's the reality. We have either a work life or a school life. We have a friendship life. We have a personal life. It includes our hobbies and our vacations. In our work life, we want to get better pay. We want to get the corner office. We want to get promoted. We want to enjoy our job. Every single one of us puts an inordinate amount of energy and effort into having the best family life, the best personal life, the best work life, the best school life. I get out of that teacher's class. I went in this teacher's class. I, you know what? Whatever it is, we are always trying to make those parts of our life the best they can be. I want to challenge you to make church life the best it can be because as you see coming together in this room for about an hour a week was only one of their five practices It was only one of the five things that they were committed to doing to be the church Jesus is building and let me share with you the result one more time we've already read it but pay attention to it this time day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Their physical needs were met and their emotional needs were met. Their hearts were glad. Praising God, God was blessed and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here's what we have to understand. It's not just about going to heaven. It's also about how we live on the earth and the way they did church and the way they were the church and the way they lived life. It brought so much glory to God with their own needs being met that the lost wanted in on it. And I think that's the goal for you and me today. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, we do thank you that in your incredible wisdom you did not leave us here to do life alone. It's not just about believing and waiting for heaven and being isolated and lonely and ineffective. God, that's the life that some of us have chosen and today we lay that down before you. Today, we commit anew or maybe for the first time to being your church while we live here on this earth. We commit to having these foundational practices that your early church your disciples showed us the way god we want more than to just live a miserable life waiting until we die we want to make a difference here on the earth we want to change lives of people around us we want to change the world we want to bring much glory to your name so god we ask you would you come and reveal to each of us how we can bring more of these foundational practices from 2,000 years ago to each of our own lives. If you just stay in a place of prayer, I want to speak to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. Here's the reality. Every one of us at some point has done something that we call sin, something that wasn't perfectly holy. You see, God is perfectly holy and we're not. Sin is the word for those actions and attitudes and thoughts that separate us from him. The good news is that God loves you so much he doesn't want you to have to pay for your sins on your own. Were to be separated from him. So he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life on the earth so that when he died on the cross, his life, his death, could pay for your sins. And then when he was raised from the dead, that he could offer you eternal life by that same power. We call it the free gift of salvation. And if you've never received that free gift that Jesus is offering you, I wanna help you do that right now. Wherever you are, would you simply pray to God and say something? like this. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so now I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. In my simple prayer today, would you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom? Amen. Would you all help me celebrate with them, everybody?